Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Asset Allocation Weekly Report for September 11th, 2021. It appears more and more likely that Jerome Powell will be nominated by President Biden to serve another term as chairman of the Federal Reserve. But that doesn't mean there isn't significant opposition in Congress and elsewhere. And the nature of that opposition appears to extend beyond the man himself calling into question the fundamental relationship between the Federal Reserve and Congress. And depending on how this plays out, the eventual impact on investors could be significant. And that's the theme of our program today. I'm Phil Adler. Joining me is Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist, Bill O'Grady. First of all, Bill, let's discuss the likelihood of Powell's nomination to serve another term. Why do you think it is likely that the nomination will be made and will move forward? Well, there's a few reasons why Powell is likely to be renominated. First and foremost, the administration has a lot on its plate. It's trying to pass an infrastructure bill, a very large budget. It has a debt ceiling to grapple with. And Afghanistan has become a huge distraction. Adding a new Fed chair to that roster would be difficult. Second, Powell has been reliably dovish. He acted quickly in the 2020 pandemic crisis, and he has cultivated strong relationships on Capitol Hill. Now, he's not without his faults. He's been very friendly to the banking industry on regulation, which isn't well-liked in some circles. But on balance, it's hard to make a case for opposing him. And he made a uh, recent speech at the annual Fed conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which appeared to satisfy Wall Street. The stock market rallied after that speech. Can you summarize the speech for us and tell us whether it boosted Powell's chance for renomination? Well, personally, I thought the speech was brilliant. Powell was facing increasing opposition to quantitative easing, which is the Fed's purchases of mortgage and treasury bonds. It looked to me that he ran the risk of losing the majority of the FOMC, which would have looked something similar to a no-confidence vote. What he did, which his predecessors failed to do, is separate the removal of quantitative easing from rate hikes. By doing so, he satisfied the hogs on the FOMC and yet at the same time kept policy accommodative. So far, it looks like a masterstroke. And because of this, I think the speech likely sealed his renomination. Now let's move on to what we might describe as greater forces at work. How would you describe the nature of the opposition to Powell's renomination and why it's worth paying attention to? Well, the opposition is coming from left-wing populists. Last year, in our weekly geopolitical reports on the elections, we discussed the breakdown of the American electorate. The left-wing populists think he isn't aggressive enough on banking regulation or moving on climate change. Interestingly enough, there is little criticism of his actual conduct of monetary policy. But what the left-wing populists are really agitating for is a much broader policy remit for the Fed that it probably can't do without congressional support. But we pay attention to it because it will likely become a stronger issue over the next decade. So we might say that some of the opposition is challenging the notion that the Federal Reserve should be independent of Congress. What is the history of the Federal Reserve's relationship with Congress? Well, in the end, we think that's where the left-wing populace and maybe even the right-wing populace may want to end up, which is ending the Fed's independence. 
In the Fed's history, it has seen its role adjusted at times. During World War II, for example, the Fed set interest rates across the whole yield curve and then expanded the balance sheet to fix those rates. The Fed had no say in what the Treasury did. This is what we refer to as a whole-of-government approach to policy. An independent Fed could work at cross-purposes to fiscal policy. A non-independent central bank would be forced to support the direction of fiscal policy. And how does written law govern the Fed's relationship with Congress? Well, the Federal Reserve Act established the bank as a separate entity from the federal government. It created the mandate of financial stability and stable prices. Full employment was added in the 1970s. But the current agreement that matters is the Fed Treasury Pact of 1951, which acknowledged that the Fed was independent of the Treasury. Bill, let's explore a bit further. Why is there currently a challenge to the notion of Fed independence? Well, I think there's a couple of things underway. First, there is a generational difference of opinion on the threat of climate change. In general, older Americans, though worried about climate change, assume the worst hits by 2050. For you and me, Phil, that's unlikely we'll be affected. Dane, our engineer, likely feels otherwise. For younger Americans, climate change is very likely a serious, if not existential threat. And so, supporting a whole-of-government approach from this perspective is warranted. So, for example, if the government wanted to spend money on hardening the power grid or encouraging Americans living in the West to move to the water-rich Midwest by providing subsidies in, in the current state of Fed independence, the spending could trigger the Fed to tighten. A whole-of-government approach, the Fed would keep rates at a set level to fund these initiatives. second element is that the country is evenly divided politically and power has been shifting between parties on a regular basis. The Fed is a body that can operate on its own to some degree, and so in the absence of legislation, the left-wing populace want the Fed to take unilateral action. The position can be a bit hard to justify. The Fed can't simply invest in wind power. But the actions taken by the Fed in 2008 and 2020 did stretch their remit, opening them up for this kind of response. Can we say that many current opponents of Federal Reserve independence fall into the camp of those who favor modern monetary theory, those who argue that government deficits are not a problem unless they cause high inflation. This would appeal to those in Congress who want to raise spending on social and environmental programs, and it could also appeal to those who want to cut taxes. Basically, they want a Fed that promotes spending policies that align with these priorities. Is this a fair assessment of what's happening? I see this as where the winds of change are going. Every major shift in the equality efficiency cycle needs an economic theory to justify it. When we were building out the nation between 1870 to 1929, we used classical economics to justify unfettered markets. The policies of the New Deal were backed by Keynesianism. The Reagan-Thatcher revolution was supported by supply-side economics. I expect that MMT will be the economics of the next cycle. And for MMT, the ability to run deficits is limited by two things, inflation and monetary sovereignty. The latter term describes the acceptance of one's money. The U.S. has supreme monetary sovereignty. Argentina, as an example, on the other hand, does not. The MMTers seem to support a whole-of-government approach, but they would have some sensitivity to the acceptance of money issue. How strong is the support in Congress for modern monetary theory? Well, 
the actual public acceptance of the theory, it's really only among the left-wing populace that it shows any traction. However, in practice, they are all MMTers. Both parties' deficits spend without much concern. And on the money issue, uh, go into it a little bit further. The dangers of a possible move away from Fed independence to, to what you describe as a whole-of-government approach. Stable fiat currencies have only been stabilized by either using a commodity to back the currency or through central bank independence. If government can create money at will, it is hard for governments not to overexpand the money supply. Anyone can justify a pet project, but eventually a government probably can't fund everything. This uh, possible move to a whole-of-government approach, what is the likelihood of this move occurring? Well, I view it as a question of when and not if. I don't think it will happen as long as the baby boom has influence. Living through the 1970s left a fear of inflation that is near Germanic on that generation. But as the boomers head off this earthly pale, the odds of this happening increase. And what are the implications for investors? Well, there are a number of things to watch, but by far the most important is inflation. Rising inflation without a corresponding rise in interest rates leads to currency debasement. The advent of cryptocurrencies, the attractiveness of gold and other commodities is in part an investor reaction to this fear. But an expansion of government spending also creates winners and losers in the economy, and investors have to pay attention to that situation as well. For example, if road building is on the agenda, owning firms that participate in such projects can be attractive. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 